Welcome to the Present History Podcast. We have a very special episode today as we are with Dr. George Severs, a leading oral historian specializing in the history of activism, sexuality, religion, and work, a postdoctoral research fellow at Birkbeck University of London, and a member of the editorial board of Oral History, the journal of the UK's Oral History Society. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure and an honour to have you here. Thanks very much for asking me. It's a, it's a real delight to be able to speak to you about it. Yeah, so we're going to be discussing oral history uh, on this episode, the power of oral history and kind of what oral history is. But before we do, would you mind kind of telling us a little bit about yourself, about your background, what kind of brought you into history? Yeah, um, I don't really remember a time where I didn't want to do uh, history or something historical. Um, when I was very young, I wanted to be an archaeologist. Um, and I suppose the more I learnt about um, uh, history and kind of modern contemporary history, the, the the more I was pulled from the very ancient to the very modern. Right. Um, but I, I suppose like many people, was kind of fascinated listening. I was very, very fortunate to have great-grandparents who I knew for quite a long time before they died and oh, was very was always fascinated to sit and listen to my kind of great-grandfather talking about his time during the war and then my great-grandmother telling me stories about kind of like life on the home front and wow. that was that was kind of um yeah really invigorating for me as a as a young person and um made doing history lessons at school really you know I was always very keen to 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 be part of those conversations and was always always really looked forward to that so I don't remember a time where I didn't want to do um to do history that was always kind of on my on my agenda um and i'm very fortunate in having known that and i always wanted that you know i always i I don't know i don't have a sense of when i knew that you could do um a phd or that you could do history right as um i won't say for a living yeah um for kind of uh (laughs) pertinent contemporary reasons but you know that you could do it full-time right that could be something you would do um, and but I do know that was what I've wanted to do for quite a long time. So I always just um, there were always next stages. So I you know did my GCSE and picked history as a subject and the same for A level and um, then came um, here where we're sat now. I was an undergraduate at Royal Holloway um, almost ten years ago, and that really uh, I suppose cemented certain interests I had and. Uh, I think somewhere in between being an A-level student and being um, an undergraduate was where I feel I really learned to um, be a historian and to... That's really where I became a a contemporary historian. Yeah, similar for me as well. I've always just loved history and it's always been around. But it's interesting that you mention that stories were a large part of, of what drew you to history. And I guess that's very much what is the realm of oral history as well, is those stories and finding those stories and so with oral history in particular how did you kind of get into that was it always an interest for you the the storytelling aspect of it or was there a a moment where you realized Mm. i want to get into to oral history yeah that's really interesting it's it's something i've only reflected on quite recently that there has been this kind of long um background of interest in stories and interest in listening not necessarily rather than reading but it struck me recently that i always used to really prefer listening to the audio books of horrible right. histories rather than yes. actually reading them. I've always had kind of, uh, you know, history sounds on, if you like. There's yes. always, but I hadn't really reflected on that. Because when I came to Holloway, um, 
I remember so the, the the route into oral history for me was through Graham Smith, who was um, who is an oral historian and who at the time um, was I think still the chair of the Oral History Society, but he was certainly um, at Royal Holloway and he was um, the department's oral historian. Right, um, and he gave a lecture in my I suppose second year, first or second year that was kind of you know approaches to history and you get people come and you know. It's one of those very broad. You probably took a similar course, that you know, very broad thing. Um, and in those days, it would be something from Nigel Soul talking about uh, medieval manuscripts, all the way up to Graham Smith talking about actually speaking to people about yeah. their real experiences. But I very much wasn't sold straight away. Mm. This is going to get me kicked out of the history <laughs> society now. But um, I wasn't sold, and I think um, I don't really remember why. But I think they're. I, I certainly have. I was I was really struck by that I, because when I I'm fast forwarding here, but when I did eventually take Graham's course as a third year, and that was the same year that the third edition of the Oral History Reader, which remains our kind of bible for oral history literature, um, somewhere in there, um, I forget which article it is, but I've got written as a kind of smarmy third year undergraduate or maybe earlier <laughs> something about like accuracy question mark, right. and I remember. Um, I remember, you know, I, I may be misremembering this actually. I think that was that was an earlier period, but I certainly had those thoughts about like, you know, how can we really know that it's true? Or I had those kind of concerns that we know are real uh, concerns of detractors of oral history. Yeah. Is the, how can we know that it's true? Is that is this is this story accurate, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so that was kind of going on at some point, and I guess there are kind of competing. Uh, think there are various method- methodologies and kind of um, historical modes of inquiry that vie for your attention when you're doing loads of different courses. But yeah. what actually got me uh, over the line and what got me kind of in- invested and interested um, is again relatively circuitous. But I had done in my second year a project um, with Andrea Mamone on fascism, and I was really interested in. Uh, British cultures of fascism, and um, I'd written my kind of piece for that was about the the kind of anti-gay sentiment that's really active in the British far right in right. the 80s and the 90s. Um, and I've since published that. That's an, that's an article that came out in Gender and Education. And I really wanted, I was really invested in this. I, I felt really, um, I was very interested in it, and there was clearly more to do. Um, I think there is more to do, and I'm sure people are doing it now. But... Um, I really wanted that to be my undergrad dissertation. And I um, asked around, and at the time the head of the department was Jonathan Phillips, and was like, well, where, where is the kind of LGBT um, history that we can do? And there basically wasn't any. Right. Uh, but someone suggested, why don't you do um, Graham's course, which was new that year, which was oral history of British health and medicine. And they said, because one of, one of the sections in that article about the, the far right is about the AIDS crisis right. and um, how the far right kind of latch on to the AIDS crisis as a as a convenient political football for already existing anti-gay politics. And someone said, why don't you do this course and write some more about the AIDS crisis? And I thought that sounded like a good idea. I did that course and completely fell in love with um, oral history. And um, I've now remembered that actually it wasn't the oral history reader that that kind of snarky little note was in because that literally came out as we started that course. But it was it felt like there was a really small group of us doing that course and it was a really um 
it was wonderful. It, it felt like I kind of had this moment where this this is what being a postgraduate student must be like because we just sort of sat there and discussed and everyone had read the same pieces and everyone felt really invested in it and I don't know it just it felt like a different kind of discussion and it felt very present and it felt very um, important and um, yeah it just gelled with me so um, that was the real kind of um, that was my kind of not eureka moment but that was where it really I really connected I suppose with that as a discipline and a kind of way of thinking about the past yeah absolutely and that that HIV AIDS crisis is something that you've definitely focused on in your work Mm -hmm. uh, after university as well would you mind telling us a little bit about your work that you've you've done there and and what you've done with that yeah certainly so I um so I did the dissertation which was about um gay men's I don't know politics or like politicization during the AIDS crisis um not a very good dissertation but interested me <laughs> and um yeah was very very hooked at that point and I I did um I had applied to do um a master's well, actually I, I applied to do not realizing that actually getting into a master's course at that time certainly was actually not that hard because um well, there are a number of reasons why. Basically, they want your money. Yeah. Um, but I, as Stella Moss, who very kindly wrote me references, will tell you I, I applied for a lot of master's courses, um, but did so right at the kind of um, the early stage where you're not quite you haven't quite finished your undergrad yet. And so I'd applied with the with the far right idea, and um, was very fortunate that um, Lucy Delap at Cambridge said, "Yep, yeah, she would be happy to supervise that." And I arrived. At, at Cambridge and um, that's when that article came out so I kind of arrived and was like oh, I'm really sorry but I've kind of I've kind of finished that already um, can I do something else and that was yeah. fine because you would expect um, as I'm sure you're finding out now doing your own work that yes. your thinking changes and yes that's a really good thing like you really want that to be the case and the more you think the more it changes so. yeah, exactly <laughs> which is a fascinating kind of journey and yeah. to kind of be able to, to, to map that I think is really um yeah exciting and engaging and yeah I, I, it's it's a, it's a really good thing to see um but certainly that was the case when I arrived and was like I've completely changed my thinking about about what I want to do and why I want to be here and by that point I'd done this course and was really invested in the history of HIV in in Britain and could see there was more to do um and so basically I needed a new dissertation topic and I kind of expected it would be something on HIV um, and it just so happened that one week we had done uh, a week on um, religious history, um, or rather like the history of uh, Christianity, religiosity in, in, in Britain. Um, wasn't about contemporary, um, Christi- well, wasn't about kind of very modern um, Christianity or his- religion at all. It was very much kind of um, classic Davidoff and Hall, family fortunes, respectability, morality stuff. But I really enjoyed that and really engaged with that and married these two um, interests because I, in the process of kind of that moment of thinking I'm really interested in religion and really interested in HIV, um, discovered there hadn't been that much done on on the kind of um, the, 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 the collision between those two um, fields and those two kind of things. And so I ended up writing my master's dissertation, which was on the Church of England's response to the AIDS crisis um, and that 
that kind of interest in religious thinking about HIV and religious approaches to um, people living with HIV has remained an interest for, for quite a long time. Um, my PhD was about AIDS activism much more generally in, um, in Britain, but there were religious aspects to that. So um, really the kind of moment of master's project study was what kind of cemented the kind of research um, my kind of research profile I think or my research like trajectory if you like in terms of really thinking about um, yeah H the, the kind of social and political and crucially the cultural history of AIDS in Britain which I think is really um, what my research has broadly been about um, ever since. Wow it's it's fascinating I know that we could do a whole podcast episode just on that absolutely because it is it is fascinating but oral history mm-hmm what is it um, in a in a kind of brief definition it might be difficult to do but what is oral history what does it encompass yeah um in a way it's very easy to answer and in a way it's very difficult to answer because um uh, what we know we know what oral history kind of looks like and we get a sense of what oral history is but oral history and oral historians are really keen uh, they're not keen to do this but they often eschew a, a kind of definitional boundary um, mostly because oral historians have tended to be um, quite radical and quite um, um, I don't know how to how to phrase it, but they, they they have they have avoided being kind of bound by definition. But there is there are things we can say about what an oral history is. Um, to my mind, an oral history is a recorded um, interview with the express purpose of that interview being to create a um, uh, to create a new historical source that being the interview so that that interview um, becomes part of the historical record becomes part of the archival record um, and usually it's about people's lives right it's normally not always a life history interview um, the vast majority I think of oral history interviews would be a life history interview um, although increasingly, you know, people, students, community projects are doing maybe more targeted interviews that are about, you know, uh, a campaign or could be could be anything really in that in that regard. But crucially, it's very different to say a vox pop or a um, an interview um, about something that's happened ten minutes ago. Right. There, there's a, there's an aspect of reflection um, that's really. Um, and crucially historical reflection that's really important to, to, to kind of defining, I suppose, what an oral history interview is. Um, but for me, it is that what, what really makes an oral history or sorry, an oral history interview distinct is that point about the kind of conscious creation of a new source. Um, yeah, I think that's that's kind of and, and there, there were plenty of um, examples, I'm sure, where that really doesn't fit quite so well. Um, but but that really, in terms of thinking about you know what might not be an oral history interview, um, often I think what the kind of defining feature of that which that which we would say is, a, is an oral history interview is that sense of um, creating a new source, doing something that that kind of fills an archival gap or that tells us something um, new. The the real kind of historiographical and actually political impetus for that comes from thinking about. Uh, or comes from historians who've reflected on whose voices are not in the in the traditional um, in, in, whose voices are not in the traditional archive, right? People who've been left out. So, um, 
the, the, the move for this, in Britain at least, comes from the history workshop movement from people like Raphael Samuel, um, Sally Alexander and others um, who really champion um, uh, unheard voices across a number of disciplines. Oral history is one in, in their kind of art, methodological arsenal. But it, at that point, it's a really fruitful thing to do because um, a kind of a, a, a marriage of convenient circumstances, people who had the capacity to teach students this methodology, the fact that tape recorders were becoming much more af affordable, accessible, portable, meant you could go and do these interviews. Um, and this, which this, I should say, this is going on in the kind of late 70s or rather the early 70s, um, onwards, you know, this is a really interesting political moment, but it's also when you think about generationally, you know, a lot of a lot of um, kind of late 19th century political actors, you know, maybe are, are just about around still, and there's this kind of sense of, um, and certainly early 20th century, you know, radicals from the labour movement, radicals from the trade union movement, these are the people in part who, those early pioneers were really keen to make sure their voices were kind of accessed. Um, and actually not just those kind of prominent radicals, really people like Raphael Samuel and his students at Ruskin College, Oxford, were really keen to make sure that like, quote unquote, ordinary workers' voices were um, were preserved. So you would get people, um, I don't know how much you know about the History Workshop movement, Zach, but the History Workshop is you know, part of the kind of rationale um, is that Raphael Samuel would have student workers at Ruskin College as a trade union college. And so you'd have people come, uh, they would be, let's say, a railwoman, and Samuel would then encourage these people to go and do their research into their own kind of working histories and working practices. So they would go and interview, you know, older um, people who'd worked on the railways or built them or whatever. So you get that kind of, um, that kind of, you know, voice on the ground. Yeah. Um, so it's not the managerial level paper archive stuff, and nor is it the, or nor is it just the prominent trade union leader stuff. It's something more kind of grassroots. That's the really key point, and that has largely maintained that emphasis on grassroots history. Yeah. So it is is very much the. It's kind of disruptive by nature, almost, mm. where it 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 takes the those ordinary voices that you might not normally hear, might not normally get listened to, in a way as well, and, and brings those into the the public consciousness in a way. Yeah, and I like that description of it being disruptive and there'll be lots of oral historians who have um, made that same noise that I made when you when you said that. <laughs> it, yeah, it starts off being purposefully the case that it's trying to disrupt the, um, the archive and just trying to disrupt the historical, um, the historical kind of um, landscape, I suppose. Recognizing not only that there were voices that were being left out, but there's, there's almost um, conscious but certainly unconscious uh, bias and um, lack of balance to what's in the archive, what's being written about. So the kind of the the, the challenge from oral history um, and others, you know, the challenge from, from other disciplines as well had, was to to disrupt that and and to change it. And it's why oral history um, as a methodology marries so well with approaches like queer history, queer theory, post-colonial studies, diaspora studies, um, and increasingly now actually disability studies, that are all trying to do the same thing, that are trying to make sure that subaltern voices um, are heard, uh, and, um, and noting those kind of 
um, that lack of balance in the historical uh, record and in historical practice. You know, that's another real challenge of, of all those disciplines is to, is to get historians to look at what they're doing as practitioners, that they're not, they're not you know, neutral in that process of, histor- of history making, that they're, they have, they have um, a real conscious and subconscious part to play in that process and actually reflecting on that is, is vital. And that, that's, that's, I think, a, a really disruptive um, and productive prompt from oral history in dialogue with many of those other kind of disciplinary um, uh, contributions. Yeah, absolutely. And I think bringing those voices to the fore is what kind of makes oral history very engaging and very interactive in a sense as well. What, what do you think it is about oral history in general that makes it so engaging, so um, intimate in a way and personal? What, what is it about oral history that connects so well with the wider public? Yeah, I think it is um, the orality of it. Right. I think it's the voice. I think it's the fact you can hear, um, hear these voices in real time. I mean, the, the fact the British Library has a, has a recording of Florence Nightingale in wow. its collection, which is wow. just remarkable. You know, we don't even have, uh, we don't have any oral record of George Orwell's voice, yeah. but we have Florence Nightingale's. Wow, this is incredible, um, and it does do something to connect you to that figure, um, whether it's someone famous like Florence Nightingale, or whether it's somebody, um, you know, much more anonymous, and who you don't have a real sense of their kind of historical, uh, you know, quote unquote significance. Um, and there's been a lot written about orality and the importance of orality over, say, you know, the fact you know, over transcription. You know, the, the fact that um, listening to these recordings tends to be much more powerful and actually more analytically salient than just reading the transcript. You get a lot more from it. So it's. I think there's 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 something quite um, you know academic. In the in this answer that that actually that that speaks much more clearly to your question, which was much more about kind of public audience and public consumption, um, but the point remains that it's the fact that there's something um, oral with an A that that kind of hit, kind of punches through the much more. I'm trying to think how to phrase this. The much more kind of. Um, There's something about the orality of an oral history interview that sp- I mean, literally speaks to the person listening to it. Like it, it, the fact that that happens in real time in a way that um, reading a transcript doesn't. I suppose it, I suppose there is something about the fact that it is in real time. If you're reading a transcript, you know it's not quite in the same temporal sense. Whereas if you're reading a diary entry or if you're reading a letter, you are reading that more in the same kind of time frame as it was being this is I'm thinking on my feet here Zach but I do think there's something about the fact that you're actually listening to that as someone is speaking it um, that really connects and we know this from you know public history settings that that uh, museum um, exhibition goers are more engaged by being able to hear people's oral history clips than just reading, you know, a section that's been painted onto the wall or that's been um, transcribed for them into a booklet. There is something really powerful about the fact you can hear this person speaking um, 
and a lot of it is, is of course as well about the fact that the voice of somebody carries with them just a lot of emotion um a lot of emphasis uh you know accent all that kind of stuff that you just don't get from however good the transcript is you just don't get it in the same way i mean there's um a clip that i was listening to recently which was um a recording of a woman um interviewed by in fact by graham smith um and she had um during the second world war had to flee from ukraine to um britain and she settles in bradford as many um ukrainian uh, forced migrants from that period did and um the transcript is very interesting but you the fact that her voice is a, just a really interesting mix of um ukrainian accent and bradford yes. is fascinating and you like there's nothing much to say about that but it's it's powerful and it's and it 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 connects with people listening to it because you get so much more of a sense of this person as an individual by hearing their actual voice um so there's tons more you could say about why um you know why it is that it's so engaging why it's so powerful but the 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 fact it's um yeah, the fact that it just it connects and it speaks and it's someone's actual voice is the main part of of that answer, I think. Um, but one caveat I would say, just to end this very long answer to your very simple question, <laughs> um, is I mentioned earlier that disability studies is a big, is I think prompting a lot of, or maybe it should be prompting more of this, but it is prompting, at least in my thinking, a lot of questions about the answer I've just given you, about the aoral uh, and about the power of the spoken word because there are thinkers like Theresa Hilliard who's been writing about um, disabled um, or her, her, her PhD was about people with cerebral palsy who um, had varying levels of um, ability to, to verbally communicate and so there's a real challenge for oral historians about how do we collect, how do we do oral history with people who have differing um, abilities to communicate verbally or to hear orally yeah. you know and the answers to those questions are going to come from disabled scholars and disability scholars um but it's a challenge we need to be ready for because there are clearly ways to do this and to read people like Teresa Hilliard and others you see this um but we're being really slow to take this up and I think it's going to be something that we really need to engage with much more seriously and much more fully because um you know Otherwise, we risk, you know, oral, the orality of the interview clearly is part and parcel of the identity of this method and yeah. um, and approach. But it can't be everything, I don't think, because otherwise we're really losing out on a really vast and really rich array of experiences. And we would do that at our, de our detriment, I think. Absolutely. It's, it's, as well with, with oral history, it's almost as if those are there are those elements of human existence that are best communicated in a oral way mm. almost and we can connect with people i guess that's why it's so prominent in holocaust studies and the history of the holocaust or oral history interviews of that is we can connect with those people not because we've experienced the same thing but by the the mere fact that we are both humans mm. those there are those elements that almost transcend the experience that we might not have shared but as humans, we can connect on, on a different level as we're yeah. hearing them 
speak and we're hearing their stories and we're collecting them almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, um, I think it speaks that what you just said speaks really nicely to a large body of thinking within oral history literature, which is you know what we're thinking there about is you know how can you engage with people who've had different experiences. To you? Yeah. There's a large amount of thinking about um, the kind of insider outsider dynamic, right. and how much does it impact the interview that comes out of this conversation if the interviewer is to some extent an insider. So Amy Tooth Murphy at Royal Holloway has written really, really beautifully about this, um, about two projects, one where she was an insider. Um, she, as a, um, a lesbian researcher, was doing interviews with um, with lesbian women and she felt that she got a lot out of that because her interviewees could like, identify with her um, and felt they could trust her um, versus a project she ran um, as, a, as a kind of manager, I think, um, with survivors of the Bethnal Green tube disaster. And she um, did not experience that disaster, but is able to point out that actually there's, I mean, as you've just said, that one, that you can really engage and sympathise just as a human, that's something quite, um, that's something that we're capable of doing in that context as well as more broadly. But that as an outsider, she was able to actually get uh, quite a lot of information because in those insider moments, you can often lose some information or you can lose some of the content because there's an assumption between the two interview, the interviewer and the interviewee, right? You can be like, oh, well, you know about that and you know this. Whereas if you're an outsider, it's, it's necessary for your interviewee to really spell things out that they might think are really self-explanatory. Um, and I realise that's not what you actually just said or asked about but I think that's I mean that's important Absolutely. to say that in those moments where you feel like actually I'm not really engaging so so um so closely or so kind of um concretely uh in the way that you know in other moments you find that real kind of um you really gel with your interviewee and really have that sense of of empathy and of, of mutual understanding they can still be really profitable and actually for both for both parties they can be but the point you actually made about that kind of the power of the voice to really speak to you it's really true, and I think it's what's really telling is that you know, and this again is something worth saying, uh, especially to people who think that maybe oral histories are, uh, are a post-war or kind of late twentieth-century um, historical creation as a source. Because not true, you know, Hansard is an oral history source. It's a spoken word. It's maybe it's not an oral history source, but it's a spoken word source. And there is something very powerful about um, early records of people's actually people's spoken words. I'm thinking of the. I don't know if you've read. Um, Helen McCarthy's book on working mothers, but that, that um, one of the early chapters of that book opens with um, an account drawn from a parliamentary um, hearing or a parliamentary um, inquiry, I think, about sweated labour and about um, has women who came to, to, I think, the House of Lords to, to give their testimony. And so it's obviously we don't have the voice themselves, but you know some of that spoken word, some of that kind of um, some of that same oral quality does come through, maybe because it's not expected, and it cuts through the kind of very formal parliamentary language that's everywhere else in that kind of source work. But there are much, and what I'm trying to say here is there are much earlier moments where we do have that um, powerful spoken voice kind of um, really appearing very strongly and, and doing exactly what you've just said about kind of, uh, I mean, in that case, across, you know, a hundred and some years, really connecting with readers and with. Um, with 
uh, clearly with with McCarthy as well. Um, it's a really useful source. Um, so that yeah, that, that I think makes very clear in that quite alien context, alien in, talk, in terms of what we're talking about. You know, just how powerful the spoken word can be. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Present History Podcast. But this was only half the conversation. So check back next week where we discuss through the practicalities of conducting an oral history interview and the impact that oral history can have on history as a whole, its future, and even the education system. You do not want to miss that. So in the meantime, make sure to follow us on all social medias to keep up to date with everything that we do. Make sure to subscribe and leave a rating on Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you are listening to this. And we'll see you next time on the Present History Podcast.